Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine. It is the first full week in February 2024, and what a day in February 6th. Tuesday, 2024. It is Wednesday today. We could not help but talk about this monumental day. We have got a ruling from the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for D.C. against Trump in the the presidential immunity case. We have a jury verdict of four counts of involuntary manslaughter against the mother of the Michigan shooter, um, Crumley. We also have the failed impeachment for Mayorkas in the in Congress, as well as, goodness, a couple of other things along the way. Uh, we also have the discussion about Fonnie Willis, the information that's coming out now about her, as well as possible perjury in the civil fraud trial against Trump. So it is a packed week. Join us for this full conversation. We're going to hit all of it. If you don't hear one convert part of the conversation, skip ahead to the others. We think you'll find something you like and enjoy. And speaking of enjoy, if you're enjoying our program, please hit like and subscribe so that you can find our next ones and others can enjoy the program too. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer tell you do. And uh, we are also with the Law Unscripted. That is the company that is hosting the Legal Weekly Wine. Um, It's an education company for law students, undergrad students, and those looking to learn about the law. We have this podcast, another free podcast, and law exam and bar exam help and preparation. But that concludes me. We've got Dr. John Vile joining us. He's the dean of the Middle Tennessee State University Honors College. He's also an expert on the Constitution, the amending process and constitutional law. Welcome back. Good to be here. And Chelsea Rogers, she's an attorney with Tarani Law as well. And she's also a member of the Law Unscripted, um, very invaluable for all of her resources. She is up to date on all of the facts and the legal analysis um, of these cases, especially with the trial of the Michigan shooter today. So we are looking forward to hearing all of your expertise. And let's get to the wine and then to our hot topics, because it is the Legal Weekly Wine. Anybody have something to drink today? H2O. Woohoo. All right. You're, you're H2O. I keep, I really keep thinking that there's the water into wine happening every week that we just haven't caught on to yet. Hey, what? If we could do that, we would get many more listeners. Well, that's true. Many <laughs> more viewers. listeners, a lot yes. more money. <laughs> See if you can work on that. Maybe we can get a priest in. Um, for the, yeah. So for the, for the Eucharist, uh, Chelsea, on that note, what are you drinking today? Same as always, my classic boxed wine. As always, I'm I'm back here with it. Fantastic. Well, I've got a different one today. We haven't done many Cote de Rhone. Um, We usually do a lot more of the sweeter wines, but I actually really like Cote de Rhone. It's a nice red wine. Um, It is a a French wine. It is from that area. Um, Domaine de Christia Cote de Rhone. Uh, however great that pronunciation is or not. It's a 2021. I will put a description in and where to find it in the uh, in the description for this podcast. So that's what I am drinking. I am also, because I haven't eaten very much today and thought, well, wine and chocolate go together. I am doing a Hershey bar. This is not a paid advertisement. It's just simply a good Hershey bar with the chocolate. So wine and chocolate it is for me. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Oh, that goes down so well. It's so light. That's really nice, Cote de Rhone. So going to eat some chocolate. And now what we're going to do is we're going to start, let's start with the presidential immunity. Um, This was an extremely significant ruling that everybody has been waiting for. We've been on our seats. We've made some predictions about it. We've talked about the presidential immunity and how far it goes. But Let's talk about the ruling by the the U.S. District Court of Appeals, the Circuit Court of Appeals for D.C., and how many judges, why there were only three, what the actual um, decision was, what the implications are, what happens next. And Dr. Vile, I know you have a very a, a different take that I don't think many, if any, people have really picked up on with the decision. So we're going to talk about that too. Um, But let's start, Dr. Vile, if you can give us the initial description of who made the decision, 
how many, why it was so few, and what the actual decision is. Okay. Well, this is actually a follow-up case. We've had a district court decision uh, that was stayed, as I understand it. Correct. We had, we had a, we, I mean, she made the decision, and then she said, I'm not actually going to apply it until you know, t- 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 it's uh, going on appeal. And this was so Judge the district Chutkin. decision basically decided mm-hmm. a, a, well, I don't— Here's where I would need to go back and look. I don't know if it was a sitting president or a former president, mm. but whatever it was, Trump did not have immunity against criminal prosecution. Um, this case, so typically a case, if it starts in a federal court, you have your your district court, you have your circuit court, and then you have your Supreme Court. Correct. So it's now to, and in your circuit court decisions, Typically, they are three-judge courts. You have a panel that's much larger than that, but to get to all the work, they divide them into three mm. groups of three, and they do the decisions. So this isn't uh, unusual that it's only it's three judges. It's not unusual at all, no. Uh, I, I think it's probably actually fairly normative. Uh, if it's a really consequential case, uh, but even then, I think... That what would typically happen is if you got a three-court judge decision, they could then ask to have an en banc or everybody on the circuit listen. And that's a possibility here, but those possibilities are more likely in a case where you have a split decision or where you have a decision at the circuit court that differs from that of the lower court. And this this is a per curiam decision. We've talked about that before. Curry but what does group. yeah? What does that mean? Well, right, Curry is a group, but in this case, it means you have a decision that is agreed to by all three of the justices, but not or it's judges. Unanimous. I guess I should say they're not Supreme Court. All three judges, one of whom was a George Bush appointee, maybe H. Okay. W. Bush appointee. So Republican. Two, pardon. Republican. Right, and two and two Democrats. So, so far, you've had four judges who have all basically said the same thing. So the most logical thing that would happen now would be that it would be appealed to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court doesn't have to take it. Right. If it doesn't take it, it leaves the decision in place mm-hmm. uh, as valid law. It wouldn't be quite the same status as if the Supreme Court took it and then affirmed it. On the other hand, uh, in terms of Jack Smith, he probably hopes the court just leaves it because that means he can proceed ahead. Right. There's no more delays in his case. That's right. And essentially, I mean, the, at issue is, is well, and, and here's where you, you mentioned I had sort of a, a, an unusual take on it. I cannot tell whether, whether the decision applies to a sitting president or not. Or whether uh, it course, waits until he's off out of the presidency. Right. I mean, it's clear that it applies to an ex-president. Mm-hmm. And the logic, I think, is impeccable. The, the, the president argues that, or Trump, former president, Trump mm-hmm. says, well, if I had to worry about criminal prosecution, you know, I wouldn't want to do anything out of fear. The court says, well, if there's one thing maybe you should be fearful of doing, it's disobeying the law. You know, right. you weren't elected to violate the law. You're, you're elected to enforce the law. Mm-hmm. And as we had in our prior discussion, pre-discussion on this, the court relies fairly strongly on separation of powers. Right. That, you know, there is no presidential power to disobey the law. Now, some presidents have done it sometimes for valid, you know, and sometimes the presidents have acted in, mm-hmm. in the absence of law. But here you have what appears to be a president acting Contrary to law, instead of, and at the most basic level, you have a president who is disputing, Right. you know, he's intervening to try to keep himself in office, even after his vice president and, right. and, and courts and everyone else has told him that he has lost. So it's it's a fairly fundamental uh, argument that's, that's happening here. Yeah, and I want to I want to pick up on on some of the things that you're saying because there there's some quote the great quotes 
that you're yeah. explaining. And, and I want to read some. Normally, we don't always read from the decisions, but this one I think is really important. So one, you were talking about the, the branches of government and the quotes from the, the decision. It says, at bottom, former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers. That's what you were talking about. By placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches, presidential immunity against federal indictment would mean that, as to the president, the Congress could not legislate, the executive could not prosecute, and the ju judiciary could not review. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. Now, that's where your issue comes in, Dr. Vile, of where it says former occupants, not current. Well, so do does this cite, apply? Although they say former, they do cite a case probably more than one, but they cite cases that applied to sitting presidents, mm -hmm. one of which is the steel seizure case. Oh, so sure. Truman said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to seize the steel mills to stop a strike during the Korean War. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the court says, unfortunately, you're acting under congressional authority, and that authority did not give you the power to do this. Right. So, I think the logic actually applies to both sitting and former presidents, but most of the time they're fairly focused. And, and this is not unusual that a court will, you know, let's not let's not say more than what we, you know, let's stick to the facts at hand. Let's specifically right. address that. It's very focused on this particular case. Right. And, and one of the reasons it's I've heard the concepts or the the arguments for this case as why the Supreme Court wouldn't take it. And it's one of the things that you said, Dr. Vile, of there's nothing at issue. You know, four judges have now decided the right. same thing. There's not a split decision. There's nothing left to decide. But I think there may be in this case with what you're saying, because here's another quote that goes exactly to the sitting president versus the former president. It says, for the purpose of the criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, but any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. So that's where we're getting into this issue of, well, if he murdered somebody while he was a president, is, right. is he now completely immune until he gets out? Is the only remedy impeachment? And is that enough? Chelsea, what do you well, think? I actually thought that was funny. I saw some commentary on that, that the argument they're making is that Joe Biden could go find Trump in D.C. and kill him <laughs> and he would be immune from prosecution from it. Like that is what the argument being made is. Right? Oh, I so missed that one. Oh, I, I'm not sure who said it or if it was a news report. I just saw like the headline of that. And I thought it was a great way to point out sort of the absurdity of it. Right. To me, as, and as Dr. Vile has said, I think that the president should be upholding the laws. We shouldn't be worrying about having to have a federal indictment of a president. But since we are, um, I think they should be held to the same standards as everyone else. Yeah. Do you remember in the lower court, the question, and uh, was it Pan, the judge? I don't one of, remember. One of the three judges, I, I may have the name wrong, but one of the three judges asked, does this mean... Mm -hmm. That you could send seal a president could send SEAL Team Six. That's right. To assassinate someone, and they would be beyond the law. Right. And the lawyer that, said yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it really Trump Trump did not make a nuanced argument. He mm -hmm. went or his Full attorney, out. as we would say in the South, whole hog. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, no nuance at all. We're we're asking for complete immunity. And again, you know, when it comes to civil immunity, it makes some sense mm -hmm. that, sure. you know, president has, I mean, president has to make a lot of decisions uh, if it's within the confines of his authority. But, you know, what, what if he, you know, enacts retribution on a family right. member or, you know, somebody doesn't like, you know. Right. Are the, we the North one Korea? Thing that bothers me about that second quotation mm -hmm. is Trump is now citizen Trump. Right. Right. In my judgment, Biden is still citizen Biden. He may well, be President there. Biden and he right. may have certain privileges there, but you're still a citizen. You are still mm. subject, I hope, 
to some kind of boundaries. Right. And and this goes right to here's another quote that goes right to that and Chelsea your your comment as well. This says it would be a striking paradox if the president who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to quote take care that the laws be faithfully executed were the sole officer capable, capable of defying those laws with impunity. Um, so that that goes to to those. Um, we cannot accept. Here's another. We cannot accept former President Trump's claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results. Nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executive has carte blanche to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and to have their votes counted. I mean, I completely agree. It's the idea that, like, it's a president, not a king, right? Like, these rules are supposed to be for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're not saying that, you know, you're president, so now, like you said, just open season. You have no no checks on your power. That's not right. what it, this is supposed to be, right? Right. And, and I think that goes back to the earlier comment of theirs of there's three branches of government. We have separation of powers for the, the common phrase we use, checks and balances. I mean, we learned this in middle school and high school. The whole purpose of our government is to provide checks and balances against the other powers. Um, so this is, here's here's the, you know, Biden kind of thing, is it says um, Trump's reading with the Constitution, quote, would leave a president free to commit all manner of crimes with impunity so long as he is not impeached and convicted. Um, so that and, and goes that, more to the sitting president. Yeah, Trump had a, what most people consider a very novel legal argument, mm. which was, you know, the Constitution says once an well, impeachment in the United States is not a criminal penalty. It's a removal from office and possibly a barring from future office, mm -hmm. but it doesn't take your property. It doesn't put you in jail. It doesn't kill you. Mm -hmm. um, so Trump's reading or Trump's lawyer's reading of the impeachment clause is, and impeachment right. says, you know, once if you've been impeached and removed from office, this doesn't absolve you from future criminal liability. Right. And Trump says this means if you're impeached yeah. and not convicted that you, you, can't you be tried. are exempt. Yeah, it you're was a novel not argument. Guilty. It's it's logically all judges who have looked at this basically have said this is a logical fallacy. Right. Uh, you know, this sentence is referring not to both cases, but to the case of whether you've been removed from office, what can then happen to you? Right. But it's 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 one of those it need needed to be nipped in the bud. Yeah. Well, the other interesting piece of it, and and it's going to be a jury trial, and ultimately the decision of whether he committed crimes with regard to yep. to January sixth will be up to a jury, a twelve member jury. However. In this decision, the judges continue to seem to express the idea of if these facts are true, then yes. he is guilty of crimes. He yes. has violated the constitutional rights, like we were reading, of the citizens to vote and to have their vote counted. So in my mind, it almost makes it harder to find an impartial jury. Yeah. If, and, if I mean, these I think judges have already decided essentially that he's guilty, how are you going to find a jury in D.C. that hasn't known this decision? Isn't I mean, I'm not you wouldn't want <laughs> nobody's going to read it. But the three of us OK, never mind. The jury will be fine. And if they are distracting with Taylor Swift or something oh. like that, and it'll be fine. <laughs> Chelsea, what were you saying? <laughs> no, I was just going to say, if we're going to have, um, you know, pull a jury out of anywhere, people who understand, I heard a fact once, have no idea if it's true, but that DC has the most lawyers per capita of anywhere else in the United States. I believe it. It seems totally true. have no idea if it's actually true. But I was, the only other thing I was going to say is I think it's silly, this whole conversation around impeachment versus being able to be federally indicted is like, we're talking about different burdens of proof, different standards, different rules of yes. evidence, like all of that. I don't think it's a comparable comparison, even just on the practical part of like what happens, right. the procedural 
of an impeachment is so vastly different than what a criminal trial would be that I don't really think it's a, there's much to stand on there. That That's a great point. And I'm sorry, my dog is asking for attention. You can't see her, but um, I, we all support dogs here. And I'm going to pet my little doggy. So that's a good transition time. We're going to go from the presidential immunity case to the other significant decision on February 6th. And Chelsea, we're going to have you... Um, Give us a rundown of what's happened here. This is the Crumley case in Michigan. Tell us what it was about, what the ideas behind it was. This was a jury trial, a criminal jury trial, and then what the decision was. And then we're going to talk about the implications. Yeah. And I know you guys talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but so I'll keep it brief. But the idea is that back in 2021, Ethan Crumley was a school shooter. Um, he's 15 year old. And for the first time in American history, both of his parents have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. So his mother's trial was first, and that has just concluded. And the jury found that she was guilty on four counts of involuntary manslaughter, which I think I didn't know how the jury was going to decide. I had really 50-50 predictions because Agreed. it was this like new approach to prosecution, um, how people would respond to that. But which it was is also the interesting. first time a shooter's I parents thought. have been charged in all of all of our American history. Right. And I think it was interesting that they also decided to charge them with involuntary manslaughter, not something like conspiracy, mm-hmm. aiding and abetting, something like that. But they involuntary manslaughter and she was convicted of all four counts. So she will be sentenced. Um, I think it's in two weeks and right. she's, yeah, it's about two weeks and she's looking at up to 15 years per um, charge, per charge. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which that's a lot of years. Um, it is. So I, but what is also interesting, and I can't wait to talk about this, is that we have the jury foreperson doing the rounds on like the local morning shows. Right? She's already which, talking. Yes. Um, which I was like, I'm glad she's talking. I'm interested. I want to know. But also, huh, I think there's some ethical things that we could ponder about, about jury members, you know, speaking to the press mm-hmm. afterwards. But, and I would love to hear what you guys think about it. She got on and said, what was the most convincing piece of evidence to her was that the mother was the last person, last adult, excuse me, who is in control of the gun. And that that really sold her. And she said a, a couple of the other pieces of evidence that really impacted them and the rest of the jury were his notebooks and his writings and drawings and that type of thing. Yeah. Let's talk about the, those writings and, and journals, because I think with the three of us speaking before this, as, as attorneys and as a constitutional law scholar, and someone who's extremely familiar with the presentation of evidence and the rules of evidence, I was shocked, and I think all three of us were, but Chelsea, I want you to speak on this too. I do not know evidentiary, in an evidentiary basis, how those journals got in. Because these were journals not of Miss Crumley. Mm-mm. These were of her son, and her son did not testify. So in my mind, this is classic hearsay yeah. of information, you know, information submitted for the truth of the matter yeah. that was communicated outside of the jury, of the presence of the jury, outside of the court. And how did they get it in? And why did the, you know, did the other side object? Why was it submitted? Because it clearly was impactful where he's writing in his journal, my parents won't get me help. You know, I need mental health. Nobody will help me. I want to shoot up the school. I just got a gun. I'm going to go shoot up the school. So this clearly was, as you're saying, impactful for the jury, which it would be. But how in the world did it get in and why would it? And and to be clear here, the the significance of hearsay Mm -hmm. Is you can't you can't cross examine someone who isn't there, right? And there's we know in the media something that the jury did not know, which mm-hmm. is that apparently the son has told a psychiatrist that he's lied. He made it all. Some up. of the stuff is not true. So I, if I were an attorney, I would be chomping at the bit to appeal this case. And, you know, I've had reservations from the beginning. I, I thought, now, I, I, I think the, the mother made a mistake when she said she'd not do anything differently. Mm-hmm. But when I heard her testimony, 
I thought it was a giant fishing expedition, and mm. I, I, w- I was shouting into the radio, you know, relevance, relevance, relevance. Yeah. You know, she goes and plays with horses, and she has an extramarital affair, and she does all of this. You know, she's, not, gonna, she's not running for Parent of the Year award. Right. The question is, was she directly culpable for what her son did? And, you know, I do try, I mean, I, I, I have implicit faith in jurors, and mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm not not doubting that they made the best decision they could, and it might stand up. But but there are some bases here. I think that one could make a good appeal. I, I think yeah. the two pieces of appeal, and Chelsea, I'm going to get your opinion on this. I think the two possible bases for appeal, and I, I didn't watch it closely enough to know whether the defense attorneys objected. Did they actually object to this fishing expedition of did you have an affair? Like, what in the world does that matter? Um, it seems more prejudicial than probative. Yes. Um, so did they actually object and preserve the record for appeal? And if they didn't, so if they did preserve the record, I think there's a, a great case to be made that this evidence shouldn't have come in. But if they didn't preserve the record, quite frankly, I think there's a great appeal of— uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, what's what's the ineffective assistance of counsel Cancel. through Strickland versus Washington? But what do you think? So I didn't actually see whether or not they objected, but I do, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly, there were lots of hearings, evidentiary hearings before mm-hmm. the trial even started. So I'm assuming that that's when things like this or obviously not the cross-examination, but the journal sort of things came in. The only thing I can think of argument how to get that in. Now, the testimony about her extramarital affair, I have no idea why that line so of questioning. Random. So random. But the Just journal, this is off of the top. Character. Yeah. And I'm like, that to me is not the relevant niche. Her faithfulness and her marriage is not my business, is not relevant. The only thing I can think about the journal is that it wasn't brought in to say, oh, all of these things are true. It was brought in to say what she knew at the time that she had access to the information goes to her state of mind, you know, sort of her mental culpability. But I think that's a kind of a stretch. Yeah. And she denied it. She actually said, I had no, I didn't see this journal. I had no knowledge of this journal. I didn't read the journal. You're telling me what it is, but I'd never seen it before, which makes sense. Teenagers hide their journals. It's not like I would, you know, no offense, dad, but it's not like I would have shown you my journal. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, kids just don't do that. I trust you enough to believe that it would have been boring to read your journal. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it probably would have been. Um, The the couple times I tried to write it, it it just seems so, you know, such an onerous, you know, (laughs) <laughs> offering is like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to write about my day. And today I went to English class, you know, it, yeah. it, it really would have, as much as I'm very good at many things, I am not the most interesting person personally. Um, I am quite boring. So I don't boring. think that's you're, true you're at all. You're drinking the wrong thing, right? Isn't it the, <laughs> the most interesting man in the world, at least, <laughs> drink something other than wine. So. <laughs> exactly. I have to do a special episode that's just tequila shots, and we'll yeah. see how that goes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you were talking earlier, what is it, Drunk History you were mentioning? Yes, which is a podcast I love, but it's when they have people come on to the podcast and get fairly inebriated and then tell <laughs> historical events, and it is the most entertaining way to learn history that I have ever seen. It's hysterical. And, and then we were talking, so it's so close to Valentine's. And Dr. Mm-hmm. Val, you may not be familiar with this because you joined us starting in the summer. Um, but <laughs> we it, it was when it, everybody go back and watch it. It was last Valentine's Day. I think it was actually on Valentine's um, yeah. or the day before or after, whatever it was. And we <laughs> we were drinking cherry wine. Um, for, from Mariah's Vineyards. Um, we, it was from Manassas, Virginia. And we did not realize how much alcohol the, the content was. And it was so good. And we were drinking it, it was like so juice. sweet. And you could just keep, keep chugging it back. Oh, my gosh. And it was so good. So we had multiple, you know, we normally only do one glass of wine during the show. But we did multiple glasses. And by the end, it, honestly, it was the one episode where we were drunk. Um, so if you want that, that it's the only time, and it was honestly an accident, um, but it was quite a funny accident. So if it was you want so some entertainment, funny. watching that- it back. <laughs> Anywho, so we digress. Okay, so there's that decision. Um, I do think it will be appealed. I think it has to be. 
Um, I think so. And it's interesting what it will be for her husband. So the father is also scheduled to stand trial. um, And that will be starting, I believe, in April. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. But I think it was interesting to me that the jury foreperson in this case said the fact that the mother was the last adult with control of the gun was really impactful for her. Oh, goodness. Your dog. My dog is making lots of noise. I'm so sorry. It's quite all right. But I I agree with you. And honestly, I think if I were the the defense attorney for the father, I I think I would have I wouldn't have him plead, even though the mother was convicted. I think I would go through with a trial with another jury in hopes that they would find him not guilty so that, you know, the mother can continue her appeal. I don't know that it's going to stand up. I think the best decision legally without being his counsel and without knowing all of the facts, yep. um, as an attorney looking at it from the outside, it seems like it would be his best bet to do his own trial. But who knows what will happen? And I think it was most interesting to me that she continued to say during the trial, I didn't have control or possession of the gun. It was in a safe. I, My husband had the key. He had access to it. I don't know what happened to it. I don't know how my son got into it. So she was placing blame on the husband as and to he however he one, got the gun. Yeah. And he was the one who actually purchased it. Like it was Correct. his purchase. So I think that there's going to be some interesting back and forth on what, and I think it just comes down to what the jury finds to be impactful. And so this mm-hmm. jury found that she apparently was the last adult in control of the gun right. impactful. Maybe the next jury doesn't care. They care who bought it or they care many other facts that were relevant. Right. Okay, so next, let's go to the impeachment, because this was the same day. So we have a third huge legal issue happening on February 6th of 2024. Dr. Vile, I'm going to go back to you with your information and knowledge on impeachment. What happened with Mayorkas? Well, it was a silly impeachment to begin with. Um, He is not, you can disagree with his policy. You can certainly disagree with Biden's policy. He's not a decision maker as such. I mean, he's he's there to implement what the president tells him to do. Uh, hasn't committed bribery or treason or high crimes or misdemeanors. Right. Republicans thought they had the vote. They had counted, uh, but they had not counted on one Democratic congressman being wheeled in from a hospital room. And it was close <laughs> enough that that, that made that that made it that that made a difference. And he was uh, quite determined. I, I mean, it's it speaks th- that action by right. itself is to very me symbolic. Very, yes, very. That's the best word for it. The, symbolic. The, the the caution here is they'll probably bring it up again. Right. Uh, probably have another vote. Uh, they know, you know, so much of politics has become showmanship. Mm. Uh, you know. The general rule is if you constantly see somebody on television uh, who's a legislator, they're probably not doing their job. They're a show horse. Uh, They're not interested in the public good. They're Mm. interested in their own, you know, from uh, propelling themselves. Um, So it's it's really it's sort of a sad thing. Uh, It's predictable. I mean, if it's if the House does. And we've talked about this before, that in my judgment, if I were to revise the Constitution, I'd probably set the bar higher for the House and lower for the Senate. Oh, interesting. That That's you right. You should have to have a 60 percent to impeach and a maybe a 60 percent rather than a two-thirds majority mm-hmm. to convict. Through the Senate. But it's right. not particularly, you know, with, with the Senate uh, as it is now, it's, it, it's they're not going to vote. Uh, even if they, even if they go through all the motions of having the hearing and whatever, they're not ultimately going to convict on impeachment. So, and let's you know, let's we, go back we, to some facts, um, Doctor Vile. Yeah. For those who are listening who don't know, who is Mayorkas, uh, and what was the impeachment? What was the impeachment claim, and what was the ultimate vote? If you know, um, it was they fell one or two shy. I don't. I do not have the the vote. I mean, he he's. He's the person in charge of the agency that deals with immigration matters. So mm-hmm. Mayorkas is being blamed for genuine problems at the border. And, you know, what's fascinating is we actually had another vote last night. Mm. You know, well, 
since since last week, you know, we've had a compromise. We've With had the border a, deal. What most people think is a much stronger set of border regulations, you know, about to be adopted. And it looks like the consensus has fallen through for that. And so we're sort of, you know, and, and it appears as though Trump's intervention has has been consequential here. Right. It appears, and this is going to sound partisan, but I think that it's accurate. It appears as though Trump would rather have an issue mm-hmm. than get legislation adopted that might take care of it. If he can go in, yeah. if he can go into this fall right. and we still have a border crisis, and he's gonna take then he can blame Biden, even though one could say that, well, the real problem is when we get legislation, Congress won't adopt it. Right. So it, it's, it's a pretty sad situation, actually. Hmm. Okay. So that but, happened yesterday as well. Dr. Vile, what else were, were you well, we, to Well, we need to talk about the decision that may or may not, before this broadcast is out, we'll, we'll, we won't have a decision, but we'll have the arguments. Yes, let's do and, this. This is know, the so, Supreme so Court on case. Thursday, mm-hmm. the, there is a case as to whether Colorado mm-hmm. and or other states can exclude Donald Trump for, from the ballot for engaging or aiding in an insurrection. And this this is the 14th Amendment issue. Yeah, 14th Amendment, Section 3, which was primarily designed, what was immediately designed to deal with those who had had aided the Confederacy Mm -hmm. and then were trying to get get their offices back, particularly in the South. And I, I have something to recommend for viewers. Please. And I think I think they I think they can find it on their own because I was able to do so and I'm not that adept at computers. But I found a set of articles from something called Public Discourse. Uh, it's a journal of the Witherspoon Institute. Um and there are two articles. One is by, and I'm assuming they're both, I know who the one is and I don't know the other, but I'm assuming he's, they're both are very erudite. Hmm. Uh, and I'm assuming that he's a constitutional uh, scholar. Uh, Matthew Frank, F-R-A-N-C-K. Okay. All is Donald Trump disqualified from the presidency? And it was published on January the 11th of this year. And he makes a very good case that, Uh, He is disqualified uh, that he did, in fact, uh, he got a fair hearing before the Colorado court. They decided he engaged in insurrection. They have every right to keep him off the ballot. Sure. And then there is an answer a week later uh, by Michael McConnell, who I do know. Uh, He's a former federal judge and a law professor, very, very, uh, again, very erudite. Uh, and hit, Tell and us he what had response to Matthew Frank. This is January the 18th in the same magazine, Public Discourse. So, and he he makes. I mean, they both make some very good points. One of the one of the ones that I really like that McConnell makes is he says you, he distinguishes between a riot and an insurrection. Oh, interesting. Doesn't favor the riot, but he says there's an awfully big difference between a group of people, Mm. you know, for three hours engaging in destructive behavior and the Civil War. Oh, interesting. Or, you know, a a long attempt, you know, set up a rival government and all this stuff. And I, I think it's a pretty interesting argument. And I've also read another argument since that I think could be could be its escape for the for the current court, which is to make this a state's rights issue. Mm. Say that each state makes its own determination as to who's going to be on its ballot. Right. And assuming they're not, you know, doing it in a, a fashion that would violate, you know, anti-discrimination provisions related right. to gender or race or something like that. Uh, the court ought to just say every state has the right to determine who's going to be on their own ballot. The The other thing that's fascinating about this case is, is there a distinction between 
keeping somebody from being on the ballot and excluding someone who's been elected to office. And frankly, I have thought that was sort of a specious uh, distinction, but McConnell's argument has at least caused me to second guess it Hmm. because he says, if you look at the 14th Amendment, Congress does have a right to waive this requirement. They can give a pardon. So right. if if Trump were to be reelected and Congress decided, well, the people have spoken, we want to do the will of the people, they could effectively give him an exoneration. My problem with it is I'd rather take care of it at the front end. Right. You know, I think the people, you'd be less likely to have riots in the street if you excluded somebody from the ballot versus if you, you waited until they were elected and then tried to deny them uh, office. But it's it's going to be a fascinating case. Okay, uh, now Chelsea which, and I have been eyeballing each other. Yeah, go um, ahead. We've we've got to know and and explain to others because I, I I think I might know the definitions, but I'm not going to embarrass myself. Start with specious, the definition of specious. Because- oh, just uh, <laughs> illogical of. Uh, a, flip, a bad argument. Yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> professor speak. <laughs> yes, yes. This, this doctorate and professor is, is coming I'm out here. I'm sorry about that. Okay. No, it's good. So let's learn another word you've used several times um, and we've eyeballed each other about is erudite. What does erudite. that mean? Oh, that's a compliment. Okay. Uh, people who use words like specious are very erudite. <laughs> okay. They have a good vocabulary. Uh, they're very thoughtful, that sort of thing. Okay, sorry okay. about that. <laughs> Listening audience, I'm sorry. No, it's it's great. It's great to learn some more vocabulary and maybe some high school students listening can it, you it know, increase their SAT. probably I may have not quite pronounced it. E-R-U-D-I-T-E perhaps or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Spelling bees. S A T. Yeah. Don't don't don't, don't, do, don't don't judge me on my spelling, please. <laughs> oh my goodness! I, I, I need will a no never judgment judge. zone here. <laughs> Between spelling, basic addition and subtraction and fractions, I can do calculus. I that makes, and, that makes one of us. That makes one of us. Yeah, it is. <laughs> to be clear. Yeah. Count me out. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm advanced in English. I have so many good qualities, but I tell you, the absolute basics elude me. Um, which is why we have, you know, Chelsea and I have an actual bookkeeper in our office who makes sure that I don't write checks for ten cents less than than my clients should be paid. Um, but if any- it's any consolation, your mother f- tried to file a report last week that listed the value of something that was supposed to be six six hundred thousand as six hundred. Oh, <laughs> before we caught it. So. Now, <laughs> I hear civil fraud case coming, like like <laughs> Donald Trump. Is this is this a different valuation? <laughs> yes. Okay. Completely so, innocent in this case. Absolutely. With with Linda Vile, it definitely is. For those of you who don't know her, she is an absolute saint. Um, and has to be. Right to live with you. It's yes. environment. <laughs> I made her what she is. I can speak to that. <laughs> okay, so let's go to to someone who is not quite so saintly. Um, let's talk about Fonnie Willis. Um, Chelsea, and I think you and I are not as up to date on that. But if you are, please tell me. Um, so we can go to you. Otherwise, I'm going to default to Dr. Vile on this one. Let Dr. Vile take it away. <laughs> okay. Go for it. Well, and I think what happened is I think this slipped between our uh, our shows. It did. Um, you remember several weeks back, one of Trump's defendants who had, I'm sorry, one of the defendants in the Georgia racketeering case <laughs> against Trump and co-conspirators or co-racketeers, whatever the term would be, one of them alleged that there was a fair, an affair happening between Fawnie Willis, the chief mm-hmm. prosecutor, and one of the others, and his name escapes me right at the moment, but one of the people that he's hired. Right, the special then, one appointed. And, and then there were receipts <laughs> apparently produced, and I'm not sure how they got them, uh, but indicating that uh, this person she had hired at what they claim was a large salary uh, had actually bought tickets for them to go on a trip together. Vacation. Uh, and implication of, you know, apparently there is a relationship. 
And, you know, it looked like this could derail the case. I don't think it's going to. Willis has, now, at first, she didn't do very much. You know, she basically kept silent. Right. But she has since filed a 140, maybe 173-page document, wow. most of which, by the way, is appendices. But essentially, she says, yes, I'm in a romantic relationship with somebody that I've hired. Uh, she claims she had was not in this relationship when she hired him. Oh, interesting. She says that, and all of this is, uh, it's an affidavit, so okay. it's given, as I understand it, under oath. I mean, Signed under oath, yes. Yeah. So she further says, yes, I'm paying him more than the others, but that's because the others are in firms that support public service, and they are paying part of the bill, whereas for him, he, and, and as I understand it, he had actually been in three different quasi-judicial or judicial positions mm. that he had to give up in order to take on this job. Gotcha. And then she further says, uh, you know, that the idea that he's not qualified overlooks, you know, yes, he hasn't been a prosecutor before, but he's been a judge. He's done this and he's done mm. that. And in my judgment, and again, I'm only seeing one side, but I mean, what we had before is we had a sort of a salacious allegation that, you know, this guy's in it for the money, he's in it, you know, because of, because of romantic involvement. They're colluding. Right. right. And she's basically saying, yes, we do have a personal relationship, but that doesn't affect his pay. And And it, I mean, in a sense, it's all irrelevant to whether the people they're prosecuting are engaged in racketeering. Uh, you know, it would be like saying, well, you know, Virginia Tarani, uh, she's she's in this case, but I understand that she was online and drank too much cherry Kool-Aid or cherry, <laughs> right. cherry wine or whatever it was on a Valentine's Day. Uh, you know, well, what's the relevance of that to the particular case that you're bringing? So I yeah. think my judgment on reading, and, and I didn't read all the appendices, but on Reading it is it does it looks like there was more smoke in this case than there was fire, and I could be I could be mistaken, uh, and if I am, I think probably the work the worst outcome from the prosecutor's standpoint would be maybe they'd appoint somebody in her place, uh, or the the sub uh, prosecutors, and that might might cause some delay, but probably would not gen, you know not affect the general outcome, and I could be wrong on that, but that's. That, that's what I think is going to happen. Yeah, Chelsea is an attorney. Let's get, let's get your thoughts on it. Um, I, I, I love the opinions of Dr. Vile, and, and I think they're absolutely valid, and I agree with some of them, but I want to see your take. Um, as an attorney, do you think there are implications of this affair to the mm -hmm. actual case that's been brought? What do you think could happen or should happen because yeah. of these allegations and her admissions? I think this is this weird gray area, right? And mm. I think we've talked about it slightly before of that even if something is not actually happening, there is no actual collusion. It doesn't actually impact the case. You know, we're just going to take the assumption that they're behaving as they should, aside from, you know, having this relationship. It still looks bad, right? And I think that a lot of the way we operate, you know, as, you know, being in the legal system is because people trust these systems, right? And right. so I think when things like this happen, even if there's no actual wrongdoing, like that appearance of impropriety, like weakens people's trust in systems, which makes yeah. them ineffective. And I think that kind of thing should be avoided. I would wonder what the professional ethics board in her state would have to say about this. Um, it's so I unfortunate. Mean, I kind of agree that there's, you know, there's more smoke than fire. I don't really think the actual case has a lot, but I do think it brings up interesting questions of, what is unethical in systems like that? Is it unethical that wasn't, you know, that it's even happening, that it wasn't notated before? You know, how does that work? And I think that that raises a lot of questions for that. But I don't, I really, in my heart of hearts, don't believe they are doing anything wrong with this case. But I do think the other attorney was smart to bring it up. Absolutely. And I would have to. Yeah. As a Trump attorney in that case, I absolutely would have gone after it. I agree that it was, it's important, 
I agree that it's potentially unethical. I believe that it's there's potential implications for the case. Ultimately, I agree. I think that she should be replaced. Yeah. I don't think she did anything wrong with the case, but I don't think that matters. I think I don't it's think it matters either, right? The focus has turned from the actual mm-hmm. issue. Like if your personal life then becomes more distracting than what you're working on, bow out. Take a yeah. step back. And am I right? There's mm-hmm. gonna be there was a hearing scheduled. I think that's right. About this. And I believe that she is saying, here's your affidavit, here's all the evidence that you have. I don't think you need a hearing now. And so that that may give us you know, of course, that's what you would say in that in that case. The the one other thing that I, that she claims is she says yes, he did in fact buy her tickets, but when they went places, that they split the bill. Right. And I mean, you could easily see one of them paying for the motel and the other paying for the the plane or or right or the like. So I don't, you know, I I think if there was any indication that he's being particularly enriched by this particular case, but you know, Chelsea has a point that would be especially relevant if if this if this were a case involving the judge. Absolutely. That would be especially, you know, judges have to not only we talked about this before, right? Yeah. It's the very appearance of impropriety. And I think large, again, to go to smoke and fire, I think it's more appearance than reality. Yeah. I don't know enough about, you know, the ethics of, of lawyers here to know for mm-hmm. sure whether. But I, I think she made it as good a case as one could make uh, just mm-hmm. reading her brief. And, you know, maybe there'll be a counter brief that'll convince me otherwise. Legally, it seems sound. I think legally and with the case, she did the appropriate thing. Personally, right. I think it was an extremely poor decision, yeah. especially and when you're going to go after she, Trump. Yeah. When she ran for office, she had said, you know, I, uh, I'm i not going to use my employees as a dating pool. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> unfortunate decision. <laughs> it does. Oh, my goodness. So there are so many other topics we can talk about. Those are the biggest, but I don't want to end without talking about the books. Um, Dr. Vile, I know you've brought a couple. It's important to us to to pass those along and those recommendations. Which ones do you think that we should be reading this week? Well, I'm going to give you one that changed my mind on something. Mm -hmm. And it is by, let's see what his title is. He is a member... John Ragosta, a historian at the Robert Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. That's Oh, nice. Good. Wow. So it is a book. Let's see. For the people. I'm we sorry. Can sort of put it close to your chest. There yeah, we go. There we go. For the people, for the country. Patrick Henry's final political battle. Now, One of the founders you know, of our country. I, pardon? One of the founders of our country. That's right. Um, I have never been a, well, when I was in school, I memorized, uh, part of his speech. Uh, uh, he's known for his speeches. Yes. I've always had the notion he was, he was, he was something of a prodigy Hmm. and he literally spent like six weeks studying for the law and then he went and get to get certified and most of them said, "Well, you really haven't studied hard enough, but you sure are smart." <laughs> uh, and they let they gave him they gave him his law license, and he had he had a reputation when he was governor and legislator that he would always leave early, mm. and his opponents sometimes gained on him because they knew if they just waited till he left for home, they could they could do their own thing. But this is a it's it's a very fascinating you know. Patrick Henry was what's known as an anti-federalist. He thought when the new constitution was adopted, he thought that it gave too much power to the national government. He was very concerned about the necessary and proper clause and the like. Right. But in the, toward the end of his life, he was asked by George Washington to run for office. I believe it was the uh, Virginia legislature. Uh, Basically, Washington... Well, Washington was on the wrong side, perhaps. Mm. Washington was favoring the alien and sedition laws, which the the Federalist Party had adopted, basically to squelch Democratic Republicans. And that was a bad law. 
but it was done for good reasons, which was there was great concern that we were about to go to war with France and that if we did so, some of the people in America would actually be fighting for France rather than for our side. Right. But this makes an argument which I think is very much needed right now, that the beauty of Patrick Henry, and, and Henry made some outrageous accusations against the new Constitution. Oh, interesting. And I won't use the language that he used, but one of it was that the Constitution is going to be adopted. Uh, they're going to free the slaves. Uh, totally specious, specious argument at go. the time, as many, <laughs> you know, Washington, D.C. was, well, maybe this was prescient, prescient. Uh, you know, Washington, D.C. was going to become a center of corruption and uh, we would soon be like the monarchies. And But once the Constitution was adopted, he said, it's our Constitution now. Hmm. People have spoken. I'm going to go with the will of the people. And this argument says he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't. And what happened, of course, is he died too early. He died. And the people who, who got to do the narrative were Jefferson and Madison, both of whom delivered to very. And so their twist on this was, you know, he was a lazy, you know, ingrate who opposed the Constitution and that being his heritage. And this guy says, no, mm. Henry was a true patriot. Once he understood what the will of the people was, he was willing to yeah, follow right. it, even if it was contrary to what he had thought. So it's a, it's a very good read. Uh, University of Virginia Press. Uh, I highly recommend it. And there's a and then another book. Yes, yep. go for it. Another book. And you'll know this person. Rachel Martin. Oh, that's right. I went to, she was in my same grade. We went to school together at Oakland High School in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Extremely bright. Uh, Now, this was at my request. I don't know if you can read it, but uh, I heard her give a speech. I can see it. There we go. It's dedicated to Virginia and Rebecca's mother and mom and dad. Rebecca being my twin sister and our office manager. That's Uh, right. So, a most tolerant little town mm. is the story of desegregation in Clinton, Tennessee. Mm. Uh, Outside or near Oak Ridge, uh, that area of the country. Which is where Um, near Rebecca, where Rebecca lives, and you live in Tennessee as well. And it's a very sad, well, it's. You know, I heard her give a speech last Saturday at Gill, and she gave a great speech. Mm. And basically what she says is, you know, when we think about history, we think we think about the Patrick Henrys of the world and the Donald Trumps. Right. But each of us make history in our own way, and sometimes we're heroes and sometimes we're villains. Mm. And, and But most of the time, we're both. Uh, Solzhenitsyn says something like... Um, you know, the line between good and evil goes through the human heart. And we mm. have both of those qualities. And so, and I don't, I can't remember which one, but you'll see here are three white boys who are protesting. Uh, we don't want to go, go to school with Negroes. Sure. Uh, they're outside the school. One of these was like a 16-year-old, forget his name now. Um, he was a 16-year-old, brilliant guy had just won the state 4-H speaking competition on, you know, the need for good citizenship. Mm. And yet he decides to drop out of school rather than attend school with African-Americans. Then she has another story of a Baptist preacher who one Sunday is they're they're doing a Bible lesson on how the Bible requires segregation. Mm. Um. Mm. And that's what they believed. Um, Right. But in the course of this, when the desegregation ruling comes through, he says, well, we, you know, we have to obey the law. That's Mm. also scriptural. Uh, He ends up actually leading this group of nine, or I don't know how many were left at this time, but he ends up leading this group of African-American students into school. He's beaten up. Mm. Uh, But over the course of this, he becomes something of a hero. But here's, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to go through the who's. There's also there's a school superintendent or a school principal involved. There are many people. But one of the saddest things about it is 
two of the heroes of this book ultimately end up committing suicide. Mm. Why? Because they're constantly harassed. Uh, the Trauma. Clinton High School, by the way, is blown up, uh, dynamited. Mm. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, some of them 30 years later, so maybe it was something else happened in the meantime, but her sure. interpretation is they walked around with PTSD for 20, 30 years. Uh, and, you know, they were heroes. They did some of them. They did the right thing. Right. But ultimately, it became too much for them. It's, it's, mm. it's, but it's, you know, it's a very inspiring. One of the one of the odd things about it is if you ask most people about you know if you ask them about Little Rock, Arkansas, they know about Little Rock, Arkansas. But not you Clinton. ask them about George Wallace standing in front of the door at the University of Alabama, mm-hmm. they know about that. Most people don't know about Clinton, Tennessee, and it's been sort of. And one of the fascinating things about uh, Martin is she was actually, I don't know if she was working on a master's here or she was working in our Al Gore Center, uh, but she was doing, this book was took about 18 years in the making. She started out by doing oral interviews with the people wow. who had participated in this. Wow. And lot, lots of them were not. And, you know, one of the fascinating stories that I found in this book, so how many years is this? You know, this happened in 1956, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she would have been doing research maybe 2000, somewhere along the early two, Yeah, early later. to late 2000s. And sure. she tells about she had a particular difficult time for obvious reasons talking to some of the African-Americans mm. because it had been very traumatic for them. You know, sure. imagine walking into school, nobody wants you there, and they're throwing eggs at you and tomatoes and whatever. Uh, but she tells the story of finally sort of almost bushwhacking, you know, finding this guy and coming to his house and he's very polite and interviews her very, very hot day. And she so much wants to go inside. And then she realizes he's not going, he can't invite her inside because he knows about Emmett Till. And he knows, you know, he knows how many African-American men have been accused of rape or been accused of making a move on a white woman. And so almost 50 years later, there's still this, you know, something that you and I would, you know, wouldn't think twice wouldn't about. Think twice about inviting an African American into our home, uh, and many. I, I mean, he he was not being inhospitable, is what of I would say. But she realized that this, even fifty or so years later, we haven't quite gotten to where we thought we were. Mm. Uh, we we still have problems, and she's a very dynamic speaker. Uh, I was, uh, and and. Partly because she she doesn't paint everything in well, black and white. I mean, it's about integration. <laughs> but you right. know, she she realizes that people that good people made bad decisions, and people that started out on one side ended up on another. And it 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 makes you you know it makes you think you know I don't think I'm ever going to be in a historical situation that big, but maybe we will be. You know, and would right. would we do the right thing? And would we? You know, would we would we be able to as the situation changed, would be able to change with it in, in the proper way? So it's it's a, vi- a very good book. It's uh, published by uh, Simon and Schuster, and I think I think it's I think this one is a nineteen is yeah twenty twenty three. I talked to her, and she said in July, I believe, that they're going to have a paperback edition. Excellent. And this is not a terribly expensive book. But it really is the most tolerant little town, you know. If you if you want to sort of get your eyes open to another era, uh, it's it's very good. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much to both of you. This is the Legal Weekly Wine, where we touch on the hottest legal topics of the week. I think we've hit them for this week. Um, thank you both for joining us. Don't forget to hit like and subscribe um, so that you are up to date on all of our current news and our weekly news um, and so that others can see us. And also as a law student and undergrad student, don't forget to check out thelawunscripted.com where we do offer um, classes for eight subjects of law school. Um, including criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, constitutional law. Dr. Viles even included on that. We have over 50 um, videos and written 
um, products for you to choose among either piecemeal a la carte in bundles or an all access pass. So check that out. And Chelsea's actually used this, right? She well, yes. she was part and of she it. Passed the bar. Yes, so I passed the bar in the first post hoc try. Ergo, propter hoc, right? It, this must Fantastic. have been the reason. <laughs> you know what? I will fully attribute it to going through these hypos and the lectures with Virginia. I don't think I would have done. I don't think I would have passed without it. So there's my glowing recommendation for you. You can see me struggling and like working through, you know, commiserating with the the struggle that is bar prep. So yeah, check them out. Yeah. If you like our conversations, it's very conversational. We have lecture pieces where it's just me. We've got the conversations with Chelsea and with me, um, some with Dr. Vile, as well as the hypotheticals where we take a real practice question that I've created and we walk through it. What's the answer going to be? Um, we have quite a lot of fun with it. So hopefully it's something enjoyable, something entertaining, as well as something extremely useful where if Chelsea could pass the bar by going through the entire program, so can you so well, no way she probably would have passed anyway right <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's not go there <laughs> you know what i'm not a betting betting woman but i wouldn't have put my odds on that i think i was very lucky to have the resources in virginia to help me through it and so i love that we're able to share that with everyone else too yeah, walk through it with us. We had a great time. You know, as much as a good time you can have is studying for the bar. Um, but we do put it on the videos for everyone to see with Chelsea being completely real um, as where where she was, what topic she was struggling with, how you walk through it, how we talk through it. Um, hopefully you can get some great information from that. Is there a sample, Virginia? I should know, but... Do you have one that somebody can look at for free and then decide whether they want to buy others or not? So sort of. We don't have them with the actual classes that we take for the bar. But if you do the Law Unscripted podcasts, those are free and those are solely with Chelsea and with me. And it's our conversations about what is murder, what is robbery, um, what what happens with the jury? What's the real thing that happens with the jury? So if you want to see our conversation and the type of things that we do, go to that podcast. That is completely free. And we have at least 30 of those that are free and engaging. And you can still get information that is helpful for your law exams and your bar reviews. And if you like those, definitely then go to the full program or pieces of the program that you think that you need. For me, I would have bought property. I would have, I would have paid any money to go through property because it was such a struggle for me. Um, but each person has their own, whether it's a specific subject, an outline that they need versus a lecture that they need um, versus the entire the entire program of eight subjects. So uh, thanks for the question. We hope that you enjoyed um, the podcast. We hope that you get some great advantage from thelawunscripted.com. And thank you both for being with me today. Pleasure. Of course. Glad, glad to be here. All right, everybody. Thank you for being with us, too. This is the hottest takes from the Legal Weekly Wine on the second week of February 2024. And we will catch you next time on the Legal Weekly Wine.